Committee will come to order. Today we're going to hear uh, a couple of very important positions. Uh, we have a couple nominees, uh, one to be ambassador of Saudi Arabia and one to be ambassador of Iraq. And to introduce our uh, uh, nominees, we have a very, very distinguished guest from the great state of Alaska, Senator Sullivan, and he's going to make the introduction. So Senator Sullivan, the floor is yours. Well, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman and uh, Senator Menendez. It's uh, truly an honor for me to come to before the committee today on behalf of my friend and a great American, General John Abizade, U.S. Army retired, to support his confirmation to be U.S. Ambassador to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. I know you've all had an opportunity to uh, review his resume. I know many of you have already talked to General Abizade. What I wanted to do was highlight a few important elements of his personal background and experience that I have seen firsthand. Uh, after graduating from West Point, General Abizade began his distinguished Army career in 1973 as an infantry platoon leader. He rose to the rank of four-star general and was the longest-serving commander of U.S. Central Command, an area of responsibility that at the time he commanded spanned more than four million square miles from the Horn of Africa, Egypt, the Arabian Peninsula, Iraq, Afghanistan, South and Central Asia. As he rose through the ranks, he always kept his mind sharp. He achieved a master's degree in Middle Eastern Studies from Harvard University. He was an Olmsted Scholar at the University of Jordan in Amman. After 34 years of service to his nation, he retired from the U.S. military in 2007 and is now a fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. In 2005, I was a major in the Marine Corps Reserves, recalled to active duty to spend close to a year and a half as a staff officer for General Abizade when he was the CENTCOM commander. I pretty much was with him everywhere in the world during that time, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Egypt, Central Asia, and yes, Yemen and Saudi Arabia. It was a difficult time in the region, especially in Iraq. What I witnessed day in and day out is everything you would want an American general and an American public servant serving our country. A man of the highest integrity, a warrior, a scholar, an intellectual, a truly tested leader, and yes, a diplomat who during his time in the military garnered the deep respect of the leadership at the State Department due to his keen understanding of the culture and politics of the region for which he was responsible. There are few people in our country who understand the cross-currents of U.S. interests, challenges, and history in the Middle East than John Abizade. He commands respect and trust from those around him, those who have served with him. I remember watching in amazement several times as a staff officer when he had meetings with leaders in the region, all over the region, whether it was kings or prime ministers or colonels and generals, where he would begin the meetings speaking in Arabic. General Abizade speaks Arabic, by the way, another element of his uh, distinguished background. This, this kind of credibility and trust was so critical in the region. He is also a man of great, with a great sense of humor and sharp wit. I remember a time 
when I was outside his office in Iraq waiting for him, the other individual waiting for him was also a Marine Corps major. General Abizade had just had a meeting with four-star Army General Barry McCaffrey. General McCaffrey walked out, looked at the two Marine majors, and said, John, um, what's with these Marines hanging around your office? To which the general responded, I like hanging out with Marines. It makes me feel smart. <laughs> general Abizade is a classic example of an American patriot willing to serve his country for all the right reasons. He did not seek this nomination for attention or recognition. He was sought out by the administration because of his extensive experience and knowledge of the U.S.-Saudi relationship and the issues in the Middle East. He accepted President Trump's, Trump, President Trump's nomination because he knows at this point in time it is important to have someone skilled to navigate such a multifaceted relationship in this very important but challenging region. And yes, the U.S.-Saudi relationship is indeed complex. I know there is a lot of debate in this chamber on pressing foreign policy challenges in the Middle East as it relates to Saudi Arabia and Yemen and Iran, and I'm sure you'll ask him hard but fair questions. But here's an issue over which I think there should be no debate. We need a, we need a highly qualified ambassador in Riyadh, and we need that person there soon. I don't think there has been a nominee before this committee who is so uniquely qualified and well-equipped to manage the relationship of the posts for which he has been nominated. John Abizade will serve his country as he always has, with integrity, honor, and distinction. I urge all of you to support his nomination and move to confirm him as soon as possible. Thank you again, Mr. Chairman, for the opportunity to say a few words about a great American. Well, thank you very much. Uh, uh, we'll uh, hear from both of uh, our witnesses in uh, just a moment, uh, but uh, Ambassador Tuller, who's with us today, has been nominated to be Ambassador of Iraq, also a, a heavy lift. Ambassador Tuller is a career member of the Senior Foreign Service and has compelled multiple tours across the Middle East, has served his country with distinction as U.S. Ambassador to Yemen since 2014. His experience navigating the complexities of the ongoing Yemen conflict has afforded him a unique perspective on war and reconciliation, which will no doubt serve him well uh, in post-war uh, uh, post Iraq. Prior to his current role, he has served as ambassador to Kuwait as deputy chief of mission in Egypt, uh, Qatar, Kuwait, respectively, and as a senior diplomat in Iraq. Uh, let me say just a couple of things as, as we open here. Um, the, uh, as far as Saudi Arabia is concerned, we have a shared security interests with Saudi Arabia in combating Sunni extremism and Iranian influence in the region, and we should not lose sight of that. At the same time, uh, I think all of us have serious concern over events surrounding the Saudi kingdom, and the Saudi uh, GCC rift with Qatar has made difficult U.S. efforts uh, in the Gulf Arab unity against Iran. Uh, we look forward, uh, uh, Mr. Abizade, to hearing, uh, General Abizade, to hearing how you plan to work with the Saudi officials to advance U.S. objectives on, uh, a long, on a wide range of issues, including Saudi's role in the Yemen conflict, the GCC crisis with Qatar, and reported uh, 
human rights abuses. Uh, is, in addition to that, uh, we welcome Mr. Tuller uh, regarding uh, the uh, Iraq uh, post. There remains ongoing tensions between uh, Baghdad and the Kurds, as we all know, uh, particularly in the north. Repairing this relationship needs to be a priority for the United States. The Kurds have been a good friend of ours, an ally of ours, and it's important that, uh, that the relationship in Iraq be repaired. This comes at a time when the Iraqi parliament is preparing to debate a resolution that would significantly affect the U.S. military presence there. This is a hugely concerning prospect, and I look forward to hearing from you how we can work together to communicate our shared uh, security interest with officials uh, in Iraq. With that, I'll yield to the uh, ranking member, Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, and I, I just want to tell our distinguished friend and colleague, uh, Senator Sullivan, from my travels abroad, I think it's the Marine detachments that actually, uh, you know, protect the embassy. So uh, I don't know if they want to hear that joke. But in any event, uh, General Abbasid, uh, Ambassador Tula, thank you both for your past service. And thank you for both signing up to serve in two complex countries with which the United States has critical uh, security partnerships. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I think it sends a, an important signal that these are our first two nominees before the committee in this Congress, especially since we have not had a nominee for Saudi Arabia in two years. And while we have had two closed-door briefings ostensibly touching on Saudi Arabia this Congress, they were wholly unsatisfactory in providing this committee with information. The administration's attempt to explain its failure to provide a legally mandated determination about the murder of American resident Jamal Khashoggi was insulting. I urge the committee to hold open hearings with the administration to understand our actions and our objectives. And specifically, Mr. Chairman, I ask you to work with me and the other bipartisan co-sponsors on this committee on the Saudi Arabia and Yemen Accountability Act. If the president fails to act, I believe Congress must. Now to our nominees. You will both face challenging environments. General Abbasid, as we discussed, Saudi Arabia has taken a number of actions that have seriously strained the U.S.-Saudi relationship over the past few years, actions that belie the ambitious reforms many had hoped for. Under new management, the Crown Prince has launched Saudi Arabia into a devastating war in Yemen, isolated Qatar, threatening Gulf cooperation and coordination against threats from Iran and regional terrorist groups, detained and tortured members of his own family, effectively hooked-winked and intimidated the Lebanese Prime Minister, and just this week, we publicly learned about the detention and potential torture of a United States citizen. And I'd like to acknowledge that a member of Dr. Fatahi's family and his advocates are here today. Amidst all of this, we continue to cooperate in confronting real and strategic threats to the United States and Saudi interests, the kingdom does continue to face legitimate threats, including from Houthis, often with Iranian backing. No country should be expected to live with the threat of missiles being launched into civilian centers across its border. But as the conflict drags on, violent Houthi fashions only become more empowered. We cannot let these interests blind us to the values or to our long-term interests in stability. I have been disappointed with the administration's public posture towards Saudi Arabia. Our leaders, our leaders cannot credibly call on the world stage and demand accountability for human rights abuses while giving a wink and a nod to the Crown Prince. General Abbasid, while I'm wary of the militarization of the State Department, 
I believe you have the right experience for the kind of leadership we need at this embassy. As we discuss, you will face not only the challenge of engaging directly with the Saudis and managing a large mission in Riyadh, you'll have to contend with a White House that at times seems to be running its own bilateral show. Ambassador Tuller, given your current service to Yemen, uh, stationed, however, in Riyadh, as, the, as is the ousted Hadi, uh, Hadi government, I'd also posit some of these challenges to you. As our ambassador to Yemen, you have been responsible for securing U.S. interests there, for supporting an internationally-led effort to promote a political solution that offers legitimate security interests for Saudis and Yemenis, while also ensuring that all Yemeni people have a political process to express their interests, one that equitably and adequately addresses all equities and promotes our interests. You'll face somewhat similar challenges in Iraq. Unfortunately, uh, the President's lack of a coherent strategy for U.S. policy in Iraq has only increased some of the challenges we face. As we discussed yesterday, there's a growing movement within some political corners to oust American troops from the country. I believe we have invested too many American lives in national treasure, seen too many Iraqis perish under the brutality of terrorism and risk critical alliances that we have built to do that precipitously. We must work with the Iraqi people to continue to support building institutions, to promote an inclusive political process, and continue training Iraqi security forces so that the Iraqis themselves can ultimately uh, defend their country. We must support efforts to confront those seeking to continue destabilizing Iraq from a resurgent ISIS to Iranian political ambitions. And I'm particularly concerned about the proposal to permanently close the consulate in Basra. Your job will be to keep an open mind about the political process, finding a way to include Shia, Sunni, and Kurdish populations with whom all of which the United States has important relationships. And in that context, I look forward to hearing from both of you as to your testimony. Thank you, Senator. Uh, gentlemen, thank you to both of you for willing to take this on. As uh, both myself and the ranking member have stated in our opening statement, we've tried to tee up um, for you to answer some of the questions that are really challenging. About everybody that comes here, we talk about the challenging conditions in the country they're going to. This, these, both of these are very, very unique challenges. Uh, we hear a lot of talk on this committee from the administration, from the media, from all the opinion writers uh, about the problem of reconciling the United States' interests in having a uh, strategic relationship with Saudi Arabia and reconciling how we're going to do that while at the same time, as the ranking member pointed out, uh, Saudi Arabia has uh, engaged in acts that uh, just are simply not acceptable. And uh, unfortunately, as I said, we hear a lot of descriptions about the problem. We don't hear any answers. Uh, people have, there have been some modest uh, suggestions that have been made, uh, none of which would uh, resolve the problem, I don't think. It is an ongoing conversation that uh, the ranking member and I are having, and that uh, we're having uh, internally amongst this committee, sometimes publicly, sometimes privately, and likewise between the committee and the administration. So uh, we're uh, knowing that you don't have a silver bullet or a magic answer, uh, we do want to hear your thoughts, your comments, uh, analysis, and maybe even some helpful suggestions as we go forward, because everyone agrees we've got to go forward and reconcile these two uh, uh, very competing things. Uh, Iraq is not totally dissimilar, but again, uh, the kinds of things that are going on there that uh, make it very difficult uh, for us to, uh, to operate, 
but uh, it is essential we have a relationship with Iraq and that, uh, that it be in the best interest, has to be in the interest of both countries or, or it won't be a relationship. So gentlemen, thank you. And uh, we'll start out uh, uh, with you, uh, General. Why don't uh, you take the floor? Well, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member Menendez, members of the committee. Thanks goes to Senator Sullivan for a very overrated introduction. He, uh, he is a smart Marine. He is a great Marine, and he's a great Senator, and I value his service to this nation so much. Thank you, Senator Sullivan. I also want to say how privileged I am to be here with Ambassador Matt Tuller, who served in so many tough and demanding assignments. I'm honored to appear before you today as President Trump's nominee to be the next U.S. Ambassador to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. I am grateful to the President for his nomination and to Secretary Pompeo for his trust and confidence. I welcome the opportunity to discuss the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and ask that my full testimony be submitted for the record. If confirmed by the Senate, I pledge to work closely with the members of this committee to advance U.S. interests and values in Saudi Arabia and the region. My wife Kathy and my son David are both here today, and my daughters Sherry and Christy have duties far away, but they are here in spirit. I thank the family for their love, their support, and service to the nation. All of the kids have served the nation, and my son-in-law, Lieutenant Colonel Rob Shaw, continues to serve as a battalion commander of paratroopers. We have spent too much time in the Abizaid family dealing with America's wars. It is my hope that if confirmed as ambassador, I can play some small role in ensuring that my grandchildren never see combat in the Middle East. Having served for a considerable part of my life in the Middle East, I am aware of both how difficult this region can be and just how essential it is to U.S. interests <laughs> and national security. It is my conviction that stability in the Middle East is most endangered by the continued threat of violent Sunni extremism and Iran's radical policy of Shia expansionism. From Syria to Yemen, these forces foment instability, deprive the region's people of a better future, and threaten the national security of the United States. It is difficult for me to imagine today that a convoy of Iranian Revolutionary Guards Quds Force filled with weapons could travel unimpeded from Iran to Lebanon. The good people of Iran deserve a better future than the endless war and constant drain on the economy provided by the IRGC Quds Force. To confront these threats, the United States must work with and through our regional partners. We cannot effectively combat these threats nor promote our core interests and values without them. The United States has a long history of cooperation with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. It is difficult to imagine a successful U.S. effort to undercut Sunni extremism or keep Iran in check without engaging and partnering with the Kingdom. This is not to say that I am unaware of the challenges facing the U.S.-Saudi partnership today, war in Yemen, the senseless killing of Jamal Khashoggi, rifts in the Gulf Alliance, alleged abuses of innocent people to include an American citizen and female activists, all present immediate challenges. Yet, in the long run, we need a strong and mature partnership 
with Saudi Arabia, reformed their promises to make the kingdom more dynamic, more prosperous, and the region more stable. It is in our interest to make sure that the relationship is sound, to assist with the vision of reform, and not shy away from expressing our views and our values to our partners in the, king, in the kingdom. If confirmed as ambassador, I pledge to work tirelessly on the many issues that will inevitably, inevitably come between the United States and Saudi Arabia. It would be my great honor to lead our diplomatic team in Saudi Arabia to advance U.S. interests and values in the kingdom and to counter the forces that threaten U.S. national security. I am grateful for the opportunity to appear before you today, and I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you very much, uh, Ambassador Tuller. Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Menendez. Uh, Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Menendez, members of the committee, I'm honored to appear before you today as President Trump's nominee to be U.S. Ambassador to Iraq, and particularly to be here along with General Abizade, with whom I've had the privilege of working before in the region. If we're both confirmed, I look forward to a close and collaborative relationship as we both seek to advance U.S. interests in this important region. I'm grateful to President Trump and to Secretary of State Pompeo for their confidence in me. If I'm confirmed by the Senate, I pledge to work closely with the members of this committee to advance U.S. interest in Iraq. Mr. Chairman, as we begin, I ask that the full written text of my testimony be submitted for the record. It will be. I'd like to recognize and express great appreciation to my wife, Denise, who is here with me today and has provided steadfast support throughout my Foreign Service career, including during periods of separation when I served at unaccompanied posts like Iraq and Yemen, and during periods where she and other U.S. Embassy family members were evacuated from posts in Egypt and Saudi Arabia. Along with our five children, Denise and I have had the privilege of representing the United States abroad under many challenging and rewarding circumstances. Two of our children are also here today, David and Margaret, as well as our daughter, Ayai, and two of our grandchildren, Yuna and Jin Tuller. I would not be here today without the love and support of my family. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Menendez, members of the committee, I'm grateful for your consideration of me to lead one of our largest diplomatic missions in the world. If confirmed, I'll draw on my leadership and policy execution experience in the Middle East. Our relationship with Iraq remains a critical one for the United States, and if confirmed, I'll do my utmost to advance U.S. interests there. Let me stress from the outset, there's no greater priority for me than the safety and security of all Americans, whether residing in the homeland or in the Middle East and in Iraq. Our longstanding principal objective is to bolster Iraq as a sovereign, stable, united, and democratic partner of the United States. We must remain engaged to ensure that Iraq can fend off the internal and external threats, including threats from Iran, to its sovereignty and its territorial integrity. Our determination to see Iraq as a pillar of stability in the Middle East stands in stark contrast to Iran's agenda, which seeks to exploit divisions, weaken state institutions, and foster extremism. We cannot turn a blind eye to Iran's interference in Yemen, Lebanon, Bahrain, Syria, and of course Iraq. Iran and its proxies threaten our interest and the security of our friends and allies, including Iraq's Sunni neighbors and Israel. Iraq's most pressing need is for continuing assistance that reinforces the primacy of the Iraqi security forces, strengthens their capabilities, and deepens their professionalization. Together, we must be vigilant to prevent the return of ISIS or the emergence of other terrorist groups. Our coalition-wide approach to stabilization in liberated areas 
sets the conditions for more than four million internally displaced persons to return home. What much work remains to ensure the remaining 1.8 million remaining internally displaced persons are able to safely and voluntarily return to their communities and rebuild their lives. The work of our coalition is not over. We and our partners are there at the invitation of the Iraqi government with two dozen other countries helping Iraq ensure its gains against ISIS are lasting. This coalition must continue to assist the Iraqi security forces as they combat a growing ISIS insurgency. If confirmed, I will work hard to boost our commercial and economic engagement with Iraq and to provide new opportunities for U.S. businesses and to help Iraq develop its economy to meet the challenges that are growing more acute. If confirmed, another priority of mine will be assistance to Iraq's persecuted religious communities that ISIS targeted for genocide. I will emphasize the priority we attach to the safety of these communities and I will support continued U.S. assistance to these groups and will work diligently to promote prospects for their survival in Iraq. To fully stabilize, Iraq also needs to move toward a vision for national unity in which all of its communities play a part. Iraqi nationalism remains a potent force, and Iraqis are proud of their ancient heritage and culture. ISIS and other unhelpful actors want nothing more than to divide and weaken Iraq. We, on the other hand, will continue to support a strong and independent Iraq. The administration believes that a strong Kurdish regional government within a unified and federal Iraq is essential to Iraq's long-term stability and to the enduring defeat of ISIS. We're proud of our long-standing and historic partnership with Iraq's Kurdish people. Senators, if confirmed, I look forward to the support of this committee and an ongoing dialogue to together serve the interests of the American people. Thank you for the opportunity to testify, and I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you very much. We're going to proceed to a, a five-minute round of uh, questions. I'm going to reserve my time, and I'm going to yield to the ranking member. Thank you, opening Mr. questions. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for your testimony and to your families, because they also share in the sacrifice. Uh, General Abbasid, we talked a little bit about in the office. Uh, the administration uh, has a habit of communicating with foreign governments, including foreign leaders, outside of traditional diplomatic channels. Uh, how do you plan to exercise your authority as chief of mission? Will you insist on remaining fully informed and briefed of all White House and administration officials' interactions with the Crown Prince and other members of the Royal Court? Thank you, Senator. Yes, I will insist upon that. And I am also an old soldier, and I know my chain of command. My chain of command is the president and uh, through the Secretary of Defense or Secretary of State. Freudian slip, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Understandable. Um, I also will, will join with the many interlocutors that will come out from Washington and from other places in our country and talk to them because I think it's hugely important for me to explain what's going on in Saudi Arabia from America's point of view and to give a point of view and an opportunity for them to see what's going on. And I raise the question because it's very difficult to be the ambassador to the chief of mission and have someone else from the outside said, you don't have to listen to that, just listen to what we tell you. And uh, that would be an impossible, even within a chain of command, that's an impossible way to operate. So uh, I, I hope you'll assert yourself uh, if confirmed uh, as our ambassador there uh, while working with others, but nonetheless assert yourself as the chief of mission. Um, I don't think I need to tell you that Congress has become increasingly concerned over the Saudi-led coalition uh, conduct in Yemen. 
This isn't to absolve the Houthis of their own abuses, but we don't sell arms to the Houthis. They're not a legitimate nation state with whom we share diplomatic relations. Repe repeated stories of U.S. supplied bombs hitting weddings, funerals, and school buses are simply unacceptable. The administration's apparent prioritization of arms sales over fundamental values is not acceptable. So I, uh, I have found this so incredibly challenging that I have placed a hold on a series of offensive weapons sales to the Saudi government, pending complete verifiable information from the State and Defense Department about how the Saudis are using American-made weapons. Can you speak to me about how you'll address this issue, if you're confirmed, as well as uh, what will you say to the Saudis about their continuing engagement in the Yemen conflict? Thank you, Senator. I think it's very important that the Saudis find a path towards peace in Yemen. It's in their interest. It's in the interest of the government of Yemen. It's in the interest of the region. It's also important that in the peace that is found, it is not found in such a way that there is a Hezbollah-like militia that is underpinned by the IRGC Quds Force that is able to operate freely in a free and independent Yemen. As far as competence in the operations conducted by the coalition there, I think they have much work to do. It's very important for us to continue to talk to them about the targeting system, about the way that they go about hitting the various targets, about the professionalization of the forces, and that when mistakes are made, that they do like we do, which is convene a board of officers, yeah. talk about the mistakes, and then take the corrective action necessary to gain better and better expertise. I'm hopeful that there is a way uh, to move forward with regard to easing the humanitarian problems of Yemen, and we will continue, if I'm confirmed, to tell the Saudi government the need to do so. Mm -hmm. um, I appreciate that. Uh, our goal is ultimately to end the conflict in Yemen, and I hope that you will move the Saudis in that direction. Let me, in the last uh, seconds that I have, get a series of yes or no's from you on these set of questions. We have seen alarming reports of both Emirati and Saudis transferring seri a, a serious uh, U.S. origin weapons systems to third-party fighters on the ground. Uh, will you engage with the Saudis to have them understand that we do not uh, uh, accept their transfer of our weapons that we sell to them to others? Yes. Uh, do you, will you continue to press the Saudi government to fully account for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi? Yes. Uh, would you um, ultimately uh, commit uh, to uh, ensuring uh, that if uh, the administration moves forward, which I don't think it has, and I know Senator Markey's very interested in this, in any type of uh, civilian nuclear agreement that we move towards the gold standard? Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you. Senator Rubio. Thank you both for being here. And General, thank you for being willing to take, I, I actually think this is the toughest assignment in the world right now in our diplomatic corps. Saudi Arabia, as you well know, is an important strategic partner on combating terrorism, on confronting Iran. Uh, they also are our most difficult uh, partner right now because um, it, it almost asks us to agree to stay silent on grotesque violations of human rights, both domestically and abroad. 
And their crown prince is not making things easier. The, he is increasingly making it untenable. He is uh, reckless. He's ruthless. He has a penchant for escalation, for taking high risks, confrontational in his foreign policy approach, and I think increasingly willing to test the limits of what he can get away with the, with the United States. Anyone who thinks that's an unfair assessment of the young man uh, should look at what he's done in the last two years. It seems like something out of a James Bond movie. He's kidnapped the Prime Minister of Lebanon. Kidnapped the Prime Minister of Lebanon. He kicked out the ambassador of Canada, canceled flights to Toronto, cut off investments, recalled all their students in Canada over a tweet, or a couple tweets from the Canadian foreign minister regarding human rights. And he's fractured the important alliance uh, with the Gulf kingdoms. He's obviously, we know, ordered, I believe, and all the evidence I believe strongly indicates he ordered or knew of efforts to murder Jamal Khashoggi and to do so in a third country in a diplomatic facility. By the way, domestically, he's ruthless. Uh, we know of the case of Saif Badawi, who's been in, sentenced to 10 years in jail and 1,000 lashes for blogging. And then we have uh, the, the case of uh, women activists, uh, upwards of 11 at one point, but who have been uh, brutally tortured and, and mistreated, whipped, beaten, electrocuted, sexually harassed in the basement of what some call the Palace of Terror. And then we have a United States citizen, a doctor, Walid Fatahi, Harvard-trained physician uh, who recently was slapped, blindfolded, stripped to his underwear, bound to a chair, shocked with electricity, all apparently in an effort to get him uh, to provide evidence against a family friend or a relative through marriage, and then reports as recently as yesterday and today that the families had their home raided uh, in retaliation for family members here in the U.S. who have had the audacity, according to the Saudis, to come to Capitol Hill and tell the stories of their family members. And then, of course, to top it all off, which is of great shame to an American company, you have Google and Apple, but particularly Google's already made this decision. There's an app in Saudi Arabia called AppSure. Here's what it translates to roughly. It's called Yes Sir. That's the name of the app. Here's what it allows men to do. It allows them to see where the women under their watch are. It allows them to cancel their passports. It allows them to look at their travel and flight logs. Uh, Google says that they're going to keep selling it because it doesn't violate their terms of service. We're still waiting on Apple. Um, I mean, it's just stunning. Anyway, the, the point being is, I guess I've given all this to you. I guess that's the, the bad news uh, of this assignment that you've agreed to take on to great credit to you. But how do we balance this? How do we balance all of this with this important regional and strategic partnership? Because this guy's making it harder. He's gone full gangster, and it's difficult to work with a guy like that no matter how important the relationship is. And welcome to the committee. Yeah. It's a great honor to be here, Senator Rubio. Senator, I, I appreciate your concern. There are many difficult problems. I would like to make the current problems short-term problems, and we work quickly to try to fix them to the best of our ability. Our relationship with Saudi Arabia is bigger than a relationship just with the crown prince. It's all about a nation. It's about a government. It's about a king. It's about the oil minister. It's about many, many nodes of people that are interested in moving the kingdom forward in a better way in the 21st century. And so I think that as I move forward and learn more about the kingdom, and I want to emphasize how much I respect the kingdom and the people there, I will look for every way possible to find out what has gone on in the short-term problems and enhance the need to make the long-term problems work. Arab societies, and Saudi Arabia in particular, have many nodes 
of interest. These nodes of interest need to be engaged by us in order to find out ways to move forward and solve these problems. This is an aside. One of the things that I think will come up during your time there is what's already been mentioned about the potential for a nuclear agreement. You know, Senator Markey and I recently introduced legislation to increase congressional oversight over any civil nuclear cooperation agreement or 123 agreement. Secretary Pompeo's already said he wants a 123 agreement which would not permit enrichment. And I just strongly encourage you to, to be a strong voice in that regard because someone who has a penchant for recklessness, who has a penchant for um, escalatory foreign policies, uh, and all the other things I've highlighted, to, re to retain the capability to enrich would be, um, I believe, an incredibly dangerous precedent to set. And, I, and I, I don't know how you serve there for two years or longer and not run into this uh, issue at some point, because I no, no doubt think it will become a prime issue here very shortly. I, I appreciate that issue, Senator. And I had failed to acknowledge the issues concerning women's rights. I have two daughters and a wife. I will be very interested in helping in the reform effort to move the rights of 50% of the population there forward in a way that brings their talents and energy to the surface. Thank you. Uh, Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And let me welcome um, both you, Mr. Tuller, and you, General Abizade, and thank you for being willing to consider taking on these difficult posts at this very important time. I would like to begin with you, General Abizade, and add my support for everything that Senator Rubio said, um, and add one more concern to that, and that is that the United States still is owed $331 million from Saudi Arabia for air refueling that we provided the coalition in Yemen. Um, I think the list of human rights violations is so long, it's hard to comprehend what's going on there. And I would like your assurances as ambassador that you will consistently raise the issue of human rights violations in a way that expresses to the Saudis the grave concern that we have in the United States about what they're doing. I will, Senator. And can you talk about how, as ambassador, you can what opportunities you have to help hold the Saudis accountable for what they're doing. It has been two years since we've had an ambassador in Saudi Arabia without any oversight or concerns expressed on some of these issues. Senator, ambassadors don't hold countries accountable. Countries hold countries accountable. It's the role of the United States to ensure that the Saudis know what we stand for, what we believe, and what the relationship needs to be to move forward. I will ensure that those ideals, those values, those mutual interests are conveyed as clearly as I can to the government of Saudi Arabia. And I look forward to working with them, not in an adversarial way, but in a way that promotes our ability to have the partnership move forward that makes the region more secure. And I know that um, several people have mentioned the Khashoggi murder. Under the Global Magnitsky Act, um, 
there is a responsibility for the administration to respond to um, that murder. Can you talk about what responsibility you might have as an ambassador to try and ensure that um, the administration is responsive under the Global Magnitsky Act? Uh, yes, Ambassador. The Secretary of, Sa of State has said on many occasions that we demand transparency and accountability. It seems to me that we will continue to do that throughout. We probably don't have all the facts. We need to get all the facts, and I will convey them to the best of my ability to the Secretary and to the National Command Authority and to this committee. Thank you. Um, Ambassador Teller, one of, the, one of the challenges that we have heard from the Iraqis in response to um, our continued presence there is the, the differences of opinion among the Iraqi people about our continued military presence in Iraq. As ambassador, how could you help um, address the concerns that the Iraqi people have? Uh, thank you, Senator. Our, our military presence and the presence of other coalition members is there at the invitation and request of the Iraqi government. I believe there are many, many of the Iraqi political leaders, but most importantly, Iraqi military leaders who want that presence there. They understand the importance that that presence provides to enhancing their capability, to providing training and support. So I think we need to rely on those friends, those who understand the impact that our presence has, and use that leverage to make sure that that's an enduring um, contribution to Iraq's security. And, and one of the principles of this new policy with respect to Syria is the assumption that we can continue to support the Syrian Democratic Forces in Syria with um, the forces that we have in Iraq. Do you have any view on how successful that kind of policy can be? So in both cases, I think we face similar concerns about the security threat, whether it's the resurgence of ISIS or the role that Iran or other outside actors play in fomenting instability. Uh, it's always been my belief that our presence in the region, our engagement, whether it's diplomatically, militarily, economically, serves as a stabilizing presence in the region. And of course, our presence in Iraq, I think, has importance beyond just the borders of Iraq and signals to any potential threats that we are there and prepared to defend our interests. Thank you, I appreciate that. I'm out of time, but I hope that you will address the role of Iranian influence with the new Iraqi government at some point in this hearing. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Johnson. Hey, Mr. Chairman, I want to start out by thanking the nominees and their families for their past service and sacrifice and for your future service and sacrifice. Um, you know, we are faced with some stark realities, you know, reality that we don't particularly like, but ones we have to deal with. Uh, Senator Rubio was talking about, I think, the, the way I, uh, I like the way he termed it. We, we were facing uh, a crown prince that's gone full gangster. Uh, we find the behavior completely unacceptable. Uh, but at the same time, as uh, you said in your testimony, General Abizade, we need a sound relationship with Saudi Arabia. Uh, the reality is, is that Iran is, is the malign influence and needs to be countered. So I'd like both of you talking about how because you said you mentioned in your testimony, but take a little bit more time. How important is our relationship to have a in, to have a sound relationship with Saudi Arabia vis-a-vis uh, -vis Iran, General Abizade? Uh, thanks, Senator. 
how important it is, it's, it's a vital national interest that we have a sound relationship with Saudi Arabia to counter malign Iranian influence. And I, I think it's important for all of us to recognize the difference between the Iranian people and the mullahs and the IRGC Quds Force that control the security apparatus of Iran. It's my view that sooner or later, the good people of Iran, which are many, will get tired of the violence and the drains on their treasury and will start to move towards a better future. It's essential that as this happens, reform in Saudi Arabia moves apace. Saudi Arabia is the linchpin. It has been for a long time. It will continue to be. And I am confident that if we face our problems with them squarely and not mince any words about it, that we'll be able to solve them. Ambassador Tudor, let me ask you the question slightly differently. What are our, our alternatives? If we don't have a sound relationship with Saudi Arabia, where do we go to from there? Uh, Senator, I think it's, it's, it's um, sobering to imagine um, the region without that important security relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia. One of the main differences between Iran and Saudi Arabia, in my view, from the perspective of the U.S. diplomat, is Saudi Arabia wants us in the region, wants us engaged in helping to address the, the region's underlying problems. Iran and its proxies want us out of the region. They see that their agenda is served by having the United States disengaged out and not countering their malign influence. So I think it's very, very important that we work to ensure that that relationship with Saudi Arabia allows us to continue to project our influence into the region. None of us like the situation, the reality that is in Yemen right now. You're currently the ambassador. Uh, in my office during our meeting, uh, one of the questions I asked you is, because we're all counting on a peace process. I mean, we all say, you know, military solution, we have to have a peace process. But realistically, what incentive do the Houthis have to agree to a peace process? Uh, Senator, I hate to begin the answer to any question with saying it's complicated, but of course Yemen is complicated. Uh, even the Houthis, I don't think, can be viewed as monolithic. Uh, there are elements that currently are aligned with or fighting with the Houthis out of uh, ambition, of self-interest. Uh, northern tribes are elements that are still loyal to former President Saleh. I think as we continue to apply pressure to them, what I hope is that we can create conditions where some of those elements will begin to ab abandon sort of the Houthi ideological project, a project that because it's an Iranian project really in Yemen will never bring stability to Yemen. You're absolutely right, sir, that there's no way that the Houthis are going to voluntarily give up their weapons and just become part of a power-sharing arrangement. So we need to continue to apply military, economic, political, security pressure on them. Let's face it, Iran has no incentive to pressure the Houthis into some kind of a settlement, right? They, they, they would prefer a failed state in which they can operate and continue to spread their influence. So. Again, that, that being the case, absent military pressure, there's really no way we're going to come to a peace agreement, correct? Sir, I think that's correct. I, I would point out, of course, as I speak of Iran, and I, I'm sure as, as, as you do, we're really in many respects talking about the IRGC, goods force, a malign element. Uh, I, I believe if the people of Iran came to understand that their government is spending hundreds of millions of dollars in Yemen, a country far from their borders where they have no strategic interest, while they're suffering economic hardships, 
that perhaps the voice of the Iranian people can help to um, bend their policy towards something more constructive. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. Thank you, Senator Johnson. Mr. Tooley, your comments about uh, uh, the sobering thought of us not being aligned with uh, Saudi Arabia in the region and being gone from Saudi Arabia, I think is, a, is a very ins insightful. Um, uh, having said that, uh, I think that uh, the, the message needs to be strong, and uh, I'm sure General Abizade will carry it, that, uh, that uh, they're making it very difficult for us right now, and the Crown Prince particularly is, uh, is making this very, very difficult for us. And we, there are boundaries, and, uh, and that's a real problem. It is a serious problem, and, it, and it's going to have to be addressed by the Saudis and, and by the Crown Prince. Uh, thank you. And it is Senator Murphy's uh, turn. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for your willingness to serve. I hope we get you to your posts as quickly uh, as possible. Thanks to your family as well. Um, even those of us who have been the longest, uh, most vocal critics of Saudi Arabia don't wish for us to walk away from what is an incredibly important relationship, an important counterterrorism relationship. Saudi Arabia has played a role for good in the detente in the region between Israel and uh, the Gulf states. Um, but the relationship today is just completely upside down between the United States and Saudi Arabia. If you knew nothing about the history of this country, the history of Saudi Arabia, and you watched the conduct of this relationship over the course of the last year, you would get the impression that Saudi Arabia is the great power and that the United States is a dependent junior partner. Uh, after the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudis didn't come here to explain what happened. Our Secretary of State went there to do a showy photo op. Uh, the person in the administration that seems to be in charge of the relationship is someone who has absolutely no history uh, with respect to foreign policy in the region. Uh, and so uh, the reason why so many of us think that it is necessary for us to take action to reset the relationship is not because we want to walk away from it, uh, but because we need to put ourselves back in charge of this relationship and make clear that the way in which we have been treated and our residents have been treated is unacceptable. That being said, um, General Abzad, I want to turn to a slightly different part of our relationship. We do have this important counterterrorism relationship with Saudi Arabia. But as has been said, Saudi Arabia historically has been both uh, a firefighter and an arsonist when it comes to the fight uh, against terrorism, in that they certainly apply pressure on the most radical elements uh, in the region, but they also have exported a, a version of uh, Islam that forms the building blocks of extremist movements, a, a conservative, intolerant brand of Salafist, Wahhabist Islam um, that uh, they talk about wanting to control, but still seem to be sp spending a lot of time pushing money out into the region and into the world. You've written about this. You've given a lot of thought to this. Um, how do you, uh, how do you uh, predict approaching uh, this sensitive issue um, uh, as ambassador? Senator, it's a very thoughtful question. The, the time that I spent at, as the director of the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point gave me an opportunity to look at this pretty deeply. And at least I can report to you, based on my last visit out there, that the situation is getting better. And while we spend a lot of time talking about what the Crown Prince hasn't done or what he has done that is malign, we should also say that he has sent a very clear message that he favors a more tolerant 
view of Saudi Wahhabi Islam. And I see evidence of that. It's not just him, of course. It's the whole country that wants to move forward. The young people want to move, move forward. They're happy not to see the religious police on the streets. They're happy to be able to have the opportunity for women to drive, but it can't just be a PR issue. It needs to be a deep societal change issue. And I believe that the country, the country's leadership is committed to that. And we need to help them move forward to the extent that we can. You know, the, the, the locking up uh, uh, of women dissidents is not necessarily a great advertisement that you are um, willing to push a more tolerant version of Islam, but I appreciate the fact that you have spent time thinking about this, and I hope that you continue to work on it. Ambassador Teller, I wanted to ask you one specific question because you have been on the ground as our chief diplomat uh, in and around uh, Yemen um, uh, for the last several years. Um, reports emerged a few months ago that um, our coalition partners, the Saudis and the Emiratis, had transferred American weapons uh, to AQAP-linked fighters in Yemen. And in fact, in the wake of these reports, the UAE admitted to having done as such. Um, let me ask you, um, when did the administration, uh, when did you learn uh, about these transfers? Um, Mr. Senator, of course, I saw the same uh, press reports recently um, that you'd seen. Um, I believe we all saw back in 2015 some similar reports that there had been some, uh, some weapons transfers. I know that uh, CENTCOM and DOD is uh, investigating this, trying to track down exactly where and when there might have been unauthorized transfers. In the case of weapons that we had earlier provided to the Yemeni security forces back in 2010, 2008, we know that some of those weapon systems probably have fallen out of the control of Yemeni legitimate forces following the Houthi-led coup. Um, and what are the consequences of that? So we all uh, understand absolutely and take very seriously the use of end uh, use monitoring of our weapons transfers, and we expect countries to whom we transfer weapons to adhere very, very closely. And we don't just expect that. We follow up with systems to make sure that we can track and uh, hold countries accountable. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Thank you. Well thought out, Senator Murphy. Senator Romney. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member Menendez. Uh, thank you, uh, General and, and Ambassador, for being here. Thank you in particular for a lifetime of service uh, to the greatest nation on earth and to the cause of freedom. Um, the, uh, the sacrifice that you have both made in very different ways, but enormous sacrifice, putting yourself in harm's way and in danger, uh, often uh, being gone for long periods of time from your loved ones and the country of your uh, of your heritage is uh, is most commendable and uh, and I feel it's an honor to be uh, to be with you and an honor to have you willing to serve yet again in a in a place of great challenge um, a as we contemplate the uh, the outrage uh, of what um, uh, is occurring in Saudi Arabia and what has occurred there. Uh, as we contemplate the, uh, uh, the extraordinary um, uh, harm and, and pain and suffering of, of uh, civilians in Yemen, and we consider much of what goes on in, in parts of the Middle East, um, there is sometimes a, a sentiment amongst our members and amongst the American people to say, why are we there? 
why don't we just uh, why don't we just leave? Why don't we just get out of the Middle East and let the Sunnis and the Shias and and the Iranians and the Saudis do what they're going to do, and we'll just uh, stand stand back in our hemisphere and, and just not worry about it? Uh, that's not a sentiment that I share. But I'd be interested in, in the moments we have to hear from both of you as to why we're involved in the Middle East and why we're involved in Yemen. Uh, what the significance is of those things for the citizens of the United States. Uh, Mr. Tiller, why don't we begin with you? Uh, thank you very much, Senator. Uh, in the case of uh, Yemen, the United States has important interest. We uh, want to ensure that there are no terrorist groups that can arise in Yemen or use the territory there to mount attacks against us or our friends and allies. We want to make sure that there's freedom of navigation through the strategic waterways around Yemen. Much of the world's trade passes through the Bab al-Mandeb, and, of course, to contemplate that Iran or a hostile uh, power would be able to control that, I think, is uh, of great strategic interest to the United States. We want to make sure that our friends and allies in, in the region have secure borders, that they don't feel that they are being threatened by uh, groups like the Houthis can, uh, that can uh, uh, act on behalf of Iran as armed proxies in these countries. And then, Mr. Senator, there's another important interest, I think, that as Americans we have, and that is the humanitarian situation. We don't give in to hopelessness. We don't give in to cynicism. I think all of us react the same way when we see pictures, whether it's in Yemen or other parts in the world, where innocent civilians are suffering as the consequences of war or the actions of irresponsible governments. So as the United States, we have an interest in mitigating that humanitarian challenge. One of the things that I often uh, feel badly about is uh, because we have the relationships with Saudi Arabia, and understandably we hold them to a higher account, we do focus on the consequences of Saudi actions in terms, but almost 100% of the humanitarian catastrophe in Yemen has been caused by the Iranian-backed Houthis that overthrew the government, destroyed the institutions of the state, caused approximately a 40% decline in the GDP of the country. I see very, very little reporting, for example, of the millions and millions of mines that the Houthis have planted around the country that in fact have caused more civilian casualties and will continue to cause civilian casualties going into the future. So that's a great concern, and I think the American people need to be concerned about the humanitarian issues. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Senator Romney. Extremism and sectarian violence is the curse of the Middle East. And extremism, unfortunately, isn't just a curse for the people in the Middle East, it's a curse for all of us recently see what happens when an extremist attack happens between two nuclear armed powers like India and Pakistan. We have a responsibility to do our best to help the people in the region keep extremism from gaining the upper hand. When I think back to the days of the ISIS offensives not far behind us, it was terrifying to me to think of the idea that Iraq could become an ISIS-dominated state. Extremism requires constant work on the part of the good people in the region and the United States helping people help themselves to defend themselves against it. As long as Iranian state-backed Shia extremism and ISIS and Al-Qaeda type extremism on the Sunni side exist, it's important for us to stay engaged. And it's important for us to move in a direction that allows the people in the region to have a better future so they don't fall prey to the extremist narrative of lies. When I think about the future of the region, 
if countries can reform, if countries can embrace their own populations, there's a chance for a much better path ahead. I do not, by the way, believe in large presence of American forces in occupation. It's counterproductive to getting the job done. Let's help the people in the region help themselves, and in particular in the case of Saudi Arabia, their counterterrorism activities in conjunction with our own have been very, very meaningful in putting somewhat of a damper on the extremism that we see so frequently throughout the region. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Romney. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and congratulations to each of you. You're very, very well qualified for these positions, and I appreciate your service. Um, General Abzade, I'd like to start with you. Um, Jamal Khashoggi was a Virginia resident. Family lives in Virginia. And I want to raise up another individual who has a Virginia connection, just to exemplify the human rights challenges that I hope you will grapple with as ambassador, Aziza Al-Yusuf. Aziza Al-Yusuf is a legal permanent resident of the United States. She came to Richmond to study computer science at Virginia Commonwealth University a long time ago. Um, got a computer science degree, moved back to Saudi Arabia, and is a Saudi citizen who has taught computer science in Saudi Arabia to women for nearly 30 years. You have brought wonderful families with you today. She's a mother of five. She's a grandmother of eight. And she passionately believes that women should be treated as equal human beings. She has been engaged in the protests about women being able to drive. She's been very active to try to reform and end the guardianship system that essentially makes women surveil the property of a man. She's been very active in protests with respect to lax treatment of domestic violence by men against women, all while raising her family and teaching computer science in Saudi Arabia. She was imprisoned in May um, with a group of women and men who had been advocating for the right of Saudi women to drive. She was imprisoned after the driving restriction was lifted, and the interpretation of that by most has been when the driving restriction is lifted, we want to send the message, you have no rights, we're giving you a privilege, but by then imprisoning all the activists, men and women who had been advocating for women's equality in driving, it was essentially a message to everyone, you cannot protest, you have no rights, we're doing this as a privilege, and Amnesty International and other organizations indicate that um, Aziz al-Yusuf and the others who have been in prison have been tortured, uh, held, they can see their families once a month. This is a grandmother of eight, a mother of five, who spent her whole life educating Saudi women to be computer scientists. And I just will say, um, General Abizade, this is an important relationship, but for me, it's sort of a proxy of, of a nation's authoritarianism, extremism, corruption, if they treat women the way these women are being treated for simply advocating that they should have basic equal rights. And so you have the background to do this job and do it very, very well, but I hope the human rights aspect of the portfolio and the treatment of these individuals who have ties to the United States will be a top priority for you. Senator, you have my word. It will be. Thank you. Um, to Ambassador Tuller, um, is Iraq an ally? 
Sir, I think that um, the relationship between Iraq and the United States is an extremely important one that serves both of our interests. And so um, I, I think that uh, I've outlined some of those common interests, particularly in security in the region. And I expect that uh, while I'm there, I'll be able to continue to work with uh, Iraq as a partner and ally of the United States. Thank you for that. And I, I, I share it. I think we're partners. I think we're allies. There's a lot of work to do to make that relation strong. As you pointed out, we are in Iraq militarily now at their invitation. We're not occupying Iraq. Uh, we left militarily in 2011 and with the rise of ISIS in 2014, Iraq has asked us back. And even if there's some controversy about that with some, politics is not going to be a slam dunk on any issue. Overwhelmingly, the Iraqi government still wants the United States to be there to be that kind of partner. Wouldn't you agree? I think that uh, I can, we can count on Iraq to continue to want the U.S. involved. They understand what happened after the U.S. forces withdrew back in 2011, that a rise of ISIS controlling over 55,000 square miles in Iraq. This deeply, deeply traumatized and threatened Iraq, and they understand that they need the assistance of the United States and other partners to avoid the resurgence of that threat. General Abizaid said a, a powerful thing at the beginning of his testimony. He said the Abizaid family has spent too much time in the Middle East, and you don't want your grandchildren to be there at war in the Middle East. Um, it's interesting that Iraq is now an ally and a partner, and yet we still have two authorizations for military force against Iraq that are pending. President Trump said in his State of the Union, great nations don't wage endless wars. I think great Congresses shouldn't authorize endless wars. The 1991 Gulf War authorization to go after Saddam Hussein for the invasion of Kuwait is still live and active, kind of a zombie authorization floated out there. It's never been repealed. The 2002 authorization to go after the government of Saddam Hussein is still active and live. Again, kind of a zombie authorization out there that has not been repealed. Senator Young and I have introduced today uh, a bill to repeal both the first Gulf War and the 2002 Iraq authorization. There's no need to have a, a, an authorization against an ally and partner, and I would hope my colleagues might see the, the virtue in cleaning that up. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Senator Keene. Senator Paul. Thank you both for your testimony and for your service. Um, it's often said, uh, this, I'll direct this to General Abizaid, it's often said that, you know, Iran is the largest state sponsor of terrorism. It's said over and over and over again. I think it's often forgotten, though, that I would say Saudi Arabia is the largest state sponsor of radical Islam. They act in somewhat different ways. Iran is very much a regional player, and they're involved anywhere there are Shia populations, and they're very much involved in several theaters, mostly within the Middle East. Saudi Arabia's uh, malign influence, though, is worldwide. Most of the extremists that we've seen have been Sunni extremists. The Saudis fund tens of thousands of madrasas, including tens of thousands just within Pakistan. It is said that uh, people trained in these madrasas cross the border and actually attack our soldiers and have killed our soldiers in Afghanistan. And so when I hear people say, oh, they're getting better, they're letting you know, women drive, uh, part of me thinks, well, maybe that's a public relations stunt to let women drive while we imprison the activists at the same time. At the same time they're letting women drive, they're sending a team of thugs with a bone saw to chop somebody up in another country, a writer and a resident of our country. So I don't think we should be fooled. But I do think in the larger context of things, the reason I bring up sort of Iran and Saudi Arabia is 
it reminds me somewhat of the Cold War where anybody that sided with us, we turned a blind eye to, to human rights violations. So there were dictators throughout Africa, Mobutu, Mugabe, who did horrific things to their people. And we just looked away and said, well, they're our guy. You know, they're on our side against the Soviet Union. So we've divided up the Middle East. Iran's the largest state sponsor, and we never say a thing about Saudi Arabia. We're starting to because of this horrific murder. But I think we turned a blind eye because of oil, because they tend to side with us against Iran. And I just think there needs to be a more even-handed look at this. Not saying that Iran is good, but maybe both are malign actors. Also, when we look at the Middle East, I think there needs to be someone saying, you know, we, we talk about a Middle East peace process, and we're, you know, it's all been about the Palestinians and Israel. I think that's an important question, maybe an, an, an imponderable one. But I do think that really the big peace process would be someday somebody recognizing that it would be having Saudi Arabia at the same table with Iran if you really want to solve most of the Middle East process. So I guess my question to you is, given all of that, do you think we need to make a stronger statement about uh, the Saudis instead of just saying they're getting better, saying, well, you know, perhaps we need to restrict the arms sales until they quit funding madrasas. Instead of saying, please quit funding madrasas, maybe they should have to quit funding madrasas. We should play hardball with our weapons and say that people that, you know, imprison people and give people a thousand lashes and all the things the Saudis do, maybe they don't deserve our weapons. General Abbasade. Thank you, Senator Paul. I already indicated that I think extremism is a curse of the Middle East, and it's extremism on the Sunni side, and it's extremism on the Shia side. And really, sectarianism is the twin curse of the Middle East, and we have to move very, very hard to convince the good people in the region to abandon forms of extremism. But when I think of extremism in Saudi Arabia or extremism in any other Arab country, there are elements within the population that believe that if they fund extremist preachers, if they fund extremist ideologies, if they fund jihadis to move to the sound of the guns wherever the current battle might be, that they are doing God's work. And it is clearly not God's work. So we have to keep saying it. It doesn't matter whether it comes from Saudi Arabia or Egypt or the UAE or Yemen. We've got to keep saying it. We've got to keep working against it. I will not shy away from that. I, I have that. told them that for years, and I will continue to tell them that. But on the other hand, I would also like to respectfully say they have made progress. I remember having an opportunity to go to Saudi Arabia recently where I saw some very innovative and very effective programs uh, aimed specifically at reducing terrorism, both financially and on the field of battle. I appreciate that. Ambassador Tuller, uh, President Trump has often said that the greatest geopolitical blunder of the last 20 years was the Iraq War. What is your opinion on that? Well, sir, I think that uh, the removal of a leader like Saddam Hussein from the region in the long term serves the interests of the United States and stability. Do you disagree region. with the president? I don't think the president, uh, um, uh, I, I can't take his remarks. Well, his his point was that re removing Hussein created a vacuum, created endless war over there, and also empowered Iran. 
it's empowered many of those forces of sectarianism and extremism, which, but I think which, in the which long term. Which goes back to uh, Senator Kane's point, are they an ally? Some would argue Iraq is now more of an ally of Iran than they are of the U.S., but uh, the president disagrees with you. The president thinks the Iraq war was a big mistake, emboldened Iran, and we shouldn't have done it. Thank you, Senator. Uh, we will move to Senator Merkley. Uh, thank you very much. And Ambassador Tuller, when you were commenting on the, uh, the humanitarian situation in Yemen, uh, you said virtually 100% of the humanitarian problems are caused by the Houthis. Uh, I found that very surprising statement. Uh, extensive number of deaths are being caused by a cholera epidemic that comes from the Saudi bombing of water systems. Uh, the United Nations did a study that said of, of um, 17,000 civilian deaths between 2015 and 2018. Uh, the majority, 10,000, were the result of the Saudi-led bombings. Can you explain a little bit how you reached the conclusion that the Saudi bombing of civilians somehow is not responsible for 0% of the humanitarian crisis in Yemen? Uh, Senator, I think um, any um, uh, death of civilians in conflict is unacceptable, and uh, we should always... Um, That's not my question. Well, I, I think that uh, we want to... Uh, I, we cannot excuse uh, that. However... My remarks about the Houthis being almost 100% responsible. There's an anecdote that I often relate to people. In January of 2014, the most important port, uh, port in Yemen used by the private sector was the port of Aden. It had 111 ships that disembarked during that month of January 2000. In January of 2000. Mr. Ambassador, could you speak up, please? In January of 2015, which was before the Saudi led intervention, but after the Houthi takeover of Sana'a, the number of ships disembarking in Aden had fallen to nine. That I was almost 100% responsible for the Houthis' actions that caused foreign investment, the Yemeni private sector to flee the country to stop investing in that economic activity. So you, I don't want to use all my time on the lengthy explanation there, but when you say that if 100% of the Houthis, 0% of the Saudis, you are giving them no responsibility for having used their munitions to attack civilian sites in Saudi Arabia, and I find that very astounding. Sir, when we have uh, seen cases where the Saudis have caused collateral damage, we've spoken very, very forcefully to them about that. We've worked to try to uh, mitigate those consequences. We've seen improvements. Okay, the well, UN by, has by acknowledging that, you're saying there is some Saudi responsibility. Um, I'm going to have to stop there. Yes, uh, but I'm, I, I, I did find that very disturbing, uh, given the vast deaths caused by the Saudi bombing campaign. And to treat the Saudi Arabia as saying, all. They're our ally, so we'll blame someone else for all these deaths they're causing. Seems unacceptable to me. Uh, General Abizid, uh, we have really been disturbed in Oregon by the Saudi Arabia, by Saudi Arabia posting bail for Saudi citizens and then those citizens disappearing. In uh, 2016, Mr. Nora, a Saudi national, killed a 15-year-old Portland native driving approximately twice the posted speed limit. Saudi Arabia posted bail and uh, he disappeared. And uh, we had the Saudi consulate post bail for Mr. Al Hamad, who fled Oregon 
before facing trial in 2012 on multiple sex crime charges, including rape. We have uh, a Saudi national, Mr. Al-Wise, who's faced charges in 2016 for striking a homeless man with his vehicle, who disappeared. We have the Saudi consulate posting a $500,000 security deposit for Mr. Al-Harti, a student in Oregon and Saudi national, who was arrested on 2015 on 10 counts of encouraging child sex abuse before fleeing the country. We have the Saudi consulate posting $500,000 bond for Mr. Duwais, another university student and Saudi national who was arrested in 2014 on the charge of rape. We have these crimes being committed by Saudi nationals and then the Saudi government posting bail and whisking them out of the country. Is this acceptable? Certainly not acceptable for any government to assist their citizens that have violated our laws. Are you as disturbed as I am that essentially, at this moment, the Saudi nationals in the United States have a get out of jail free card that allows them to commit abuses against children, manslaughter, rape, and have no accountability? Senator, I think there has to be complete accountability for any government and their citizens living abroad, and that means respecting laws of the host nation. I would, in fairness, like to point out that there are 80,000 Saudis studying in the United States, most of whom are not the type of people you talked about. And believe you me, I'm not implying that Saudi nationals as a whole are committing crimes on a higher basis than anyone else. I don't have that statistic. I'm making the point that when a person commits a crime in the United States, we shouldn't, because they're an ally who buys a lot of stuff from us, allow them to whisk their citizens out with no accountability for rape, for child abuse, other sexual crimes, manslaughter, or for any other crime. And I, and my sense is you agree with that. I, I agree that any government that assists their citizens fleeing our justice is breaking our laws. I know, and you're translating this into a general principle, but aren't you disturbed by these exact issues regarding Saudi Arabia? Well, what I can't say, because I don't know, I accept your stories, but I don't know that the government assisted in the escape. Well, I just we, don't know that. Yes, what we do know is that um, it has been the conclusion of our government that they are likely to have assisted, and in one case, at least, the passport was surrendered. And so uh, something magical happened for the person to be able to return to Saudi Arabia. I've introduced the Escape Act, uh, which calls on the State Department to analyze this issue, to report on it. If five cases happen in Oregon that we know of, and there may well have been more we don't know about, there may have been hundreds of these cases across the country. I'm surprised that, that the State Department hasn't already investigated uh, this. I just, would, would you encourage the State Department to investigate this issue and get to the bottom of it? And if this is happening with other nations, then investigate that too. But the ones we have knowledge of all involve Saudi Arabia. 
Senator, if you confirm me, I will encourage them to do so. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Senator Young. Thank you, gentlemen, for your lifetime of service. Uh, by my reading of, of your many accomplishments, I, I, I think you come in well prepared to be, not only be confirmed, but to serve our country honorably and professionally. Mr. Ambassador, um, I, I have a follow-up question pertaining to this issue of, um, of the Houthis, the Iranian-aligned Houthis, uh, being the primary driver of the humanitarian crisis, which may indeed be the situation right now. Uh, they have mined the ground. Uh, they've they've um, been responsible by my latest briefings for numerous uh, violations of, of human rights law. But um, I think it's helpful that we remember recent history. Over the last couple of years, our Saudi partners working with the Emirates and the United States of America, who have assisted with refueling, uh, targeting assistance, uh, military training, and some other activities, um, uh, has also uh, been party to some actions that, uh, per my many briefings on the subject in classified and unclassified set settings, has helped to radicalize portions of the Houthi population, leading to their alignment with the Iranians, uh, when many would not have otherwise aligned with the uh, Iranians. Uh, they have blocked the port of Hodeida, where 80% of, 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 of food, of medicine, of, of water is delivered. Um, uh, they have uh, just uh, 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 the bombing campaigns where they have uh, indiscriminately bombed uh, civilians uh, is, is something that uh, I hope moving forward uh, we will continue to recognize, help to exacerbate what remains the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. Um, Yes, the Saudis must remain security partners. Uh, they will be complicated partners moving forward, especially uh, with their current uh, leadership and, and their crown prince's impulsive and sometimes reckless behavior uh, by uh, the uh, reading of this United States senator. So um, I just think it's very important that we're reminded of this and, and are, are sort of sober-minded as we continue to try and finesse this relationship. Senator Shaheen earlier uh, brought up the lack of responsiveness uh, that we've seen by the administration under the Global Magnitsky Act. Uh, General, I remain frustrated by the administration's unwillingness to follow another law, specifically the National Defense Authorization Act in Section 1290, which my colleague Senator Shaheen and I worked on. Um, there's a provision uh, in Section 1290 which requires the Secretary to certify that the governments of Saudi Arabia and UAE are undertaking a number of actions. The provision also includes a detailed requirement for Yemen-related briefings to Congress and requires the administration to submit to Congress a strategy for Yemen. Uh, I have not yet received, Congress has not yet received a credible certification from the administration um, I don't intend to remain silent on this. This is the law of the land, and uh, I want it to be followed. So, uh, General, would you commit to providing uh, myself and other members of this committee a monthly update on the following? A description of Saudi Arabia military and political objectives in Yemen, and whether the United States' assistance to the Saudi-led coalition has resulted in significant progress towards meeting those objectives. A description of efforts by the government of Saudi Arabia to avoid disproportionate harm to civilians and civilian objects in Yemen. 
an assessment of the need for existing secondary inspection and clearance processes and transshipment requirements on humanitarian and commercial vessels that have been cleared by the UN verification and inspection mechanism, a description of the sources of external support for the Houthi forces, including financial assistance, weapons transfers, operational planning, training, and advisory assistance, an assessment of the applicability of the U.S. and international sanctions to Houthi forces that have committed grave human rights abuses, obstructed international aid, and launched ballistic missiles into our Saudi partners' territory, and an assessment of the effect of the Saudi-led coalition's military operations in Yemen on the efforts of the U.S. to defeat AQAP and the Islamic State. General, would you commit to providing that information on a monthly basis to this committee? Thank you, Senator Young. As a citizen of the great state of Nevada and not a member of the administration, I have nothing to say about that. If you confirm me and I become a member of the administration, I can commit to assisting the administration in answering those questions. I thought you'd answer somewhere along those lines. <laughs> well, let me just note before uh, yielding back uh, to the good chairman that um, if the administration is not already tracking each of the different things I've requested of you, um, it, it's, it would be a, a matter of sort of diplomatic malpractice, uh, security malpractice uh, from my perspective. And it's my fervent hope that uh, the administration will follow the law and uh, finally provide a credible certification uh, as required under the law. Thank you. Thanks very much. Senator Cruz is next. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Gentlemen. Thank you both for your service. Uh, congratulations on the nominations you received, but thank you also for being willing to serve. Neither of the countries to which you've been nominated uh, are easy postings, uh, nor are they altogether safe postings. And so we are grateful for both of you answering the call to serve, serve your nation uh, in challenging times. Uh, General Abizet, I, I want to start with you. Saudi Arabia is, in my judgment, a, a deeply problematic ally. Uh, their human rights record has been sorely lacking. Uh, they have, for many years, been willing to fund jihadists on the principle that if you feed the crocodile, perhaps it will eat you last. Uh, their conduct with regard to Mr. Khashoggi was abominable and unacceptable. On all of those fronts, I think we should be clear and explicit uh, condemning their actions. At the same time, they're nonetheless an ally. And critically, they are a vital counterpoint to the nation of Iran. And as I look to the Middle East, the rivalry between Iran and Saudi Arabia any conduct that the United States Congress does to weaken Saudi Arabia vis-a-vis -vis Iran, to my mind, is harming the national security interests of America. Because a stronger Iran with an Ayatollah Khamenei pledging death to America, funding terrorists actively trying to murder Americans, 
a stronger Iran makes for a more dangerous world. Do you share that assessment, and what role do you believe Saudi Arabia plays in counterbalancing Iran? Uh, thank you, Senator Cruz, for the question. I certainly share your sentiments in your description about Iran. Maybe 15 years ago, maybe, I would have shared your description about Saudi Arabia. There was absolutely too much turning a blind eye towards extremists leaving the country and causing problems elsewhere. As I look at it today, I don't think the problem is solved, but I think it is getting better. There are joint task forces for combating terrorism. There's joint task forces looking at the economic flows of money into the terrorist networks. We notice here recently that Hamza bin Laden was stripped of his citizenship, that others have been forced to pay a price for their support of terrorism to Al-Qaeda, ISIS, or indeed even supporting the Iranian state. So it is incumbent upon the United States to continue to press the case that good allies do not support terrorism anywhere. And can you describe the importance of a strong Saudi Arabia as a check to Iran? Senator, I think you did an adequate job of that. I don't know what I could add. Is there any coherent or rational argument that Saudi Arabia poses a, a comparable threat to the United States uh, to that of Iran? Senator, when I look at the reform vision of 2030, if we can support it moving forward, it's a plan for diversification of the economy. It's a plan to begin the empowerment of women. It's a plan to make the armed forces more professional. It's a plan to give the young people of Saudi Arabia a hope for a better future. If that plan can succeed with the support of the international community, I believe we will see a change, an important change, that will be good for all of us in Saudi Arabia. What do you believe Iran is trying to accomplish in the Middle East? You know, Senator, We've had this conversation before, and I appreciate we've had it. Uh, and as we've noted before, I firmly believe that the good people of Iran are just putting up with the IRGC, Quds Force, and the Mullah government. Given the opportunity for a better future, just like the Saudis, if they had a vision for a reform movement, if they had a vision for a better future, the people would move in that direction. But right now, the IRGC Quds Force and the radicals are in charge, and we need to keep the pressure to cause them to ultimately be deposed by their own people. I agree with you. Uh, Ambassador Tuller, one of the more troubling developments in Iraq has been the growing influence of the Iranians, both Iranian Shia militia and also direct or indirect Iranian control of the Iraqi uh, <coughs> institutions of government. How significant do you assess that threat, and what should we be doing about it? 
Senator, I think it is a great threat. It's one that concerns us, and I know it's one that concerns the Iraqi people. I think one of the most powerful forces in Iraq, leaving aside the sectarian influences, uh, ethnic differences, and political parties, is Iraqis share a strong sense of pride in their Iraqi Arab identity. They do not want to see their country weakened, divided, sovereignty impinged upon, and they see the major threat of that coming from Iran. So I think as we empower Iraqis to build the kind of country and future they want, that's what we have um, to build on. Okay, final question. Talk to me briefly about the Kurds. The Kurds have been loyal allies. They have spilled blood supporting the United States of America. Uh, they have, I think, been neglected and mistreated far too often by United States foreign policy. Can you talk about the importance of assuring that we don't abandon the Kurds once again and, and leave them subject to the predations of their neighbors? Uh, Senator, that U.S.-Kurdish relationship is a historic one. It's a long-lasting one. I think it's a very important one. I intend, if I'm confirmed, to make sure that that relationship between the United States and, and the Kurdish people is one that's solid, that gives the Kurds the sense of security they need that they're never again in the future going to be dominated by the type of regime that uh, Saddam Hussein represented in Baghdad. At the same time, I think it's very important from the U.S. perspective that we see good, solid relationships between Baghdad and Irbil, and I intend to uh, do all I can to make sure that that relationship is a positive one. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Cruz. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for your service to this country, your willingness to serve in these new posts. Uh, this country truly, truly is grateful for your service. General Ivazade, uh, continuing on the conversation you had with Senator Cruz, um, uh, there are certain issues, resolutions that this Congress may be voting on regarding Yemen and other resolutions. Uh, how would that affect or uh, change relationships in Saudi Arabia, perhaps uh, empowering Iran, if you could talk a little bit about that? Senator, uh, first of all, I'm sorry we missed our appointment. I understand you were snowed in badly in, in Colorado. United once again proved they are in charge. <laughs> <laughs> Senator, it's a, it's a good question, and I, I don't think it is good for me as a private citizen at this point to comment on legislation. I, I would prefer to say it is very important for us to set the stage that allows for reform in Saudi Arabia, that allows ultimately someday for reform in Iran, and that allows for a better solution to the many problems that are transparent and obvious in Yemen. One thing we can't afford in Yemen, we can't afford to withdraw U.S. expertise to the coalition about how to fight. If we want them to fight right, we need to continue to give them that expertise. Another thing we can't afford is that a Hezbollah-like pro-Iranian IRGC Quds Force militia were to form in Yemen. It would be a lethal th threat to the region and one that we couldn't ignore, and certainly one that Saudi Arabia couldn't ignore. So it's important that we work in the right way in your legislation, and I know you are. Um, but again, I, I think me commenting about exactly how it should be done would be out of my place. In general, and you may have already talked about this with other members of the committee, I apologize if I'm repeating, could you talk a little bit about the civilian nuclear agreement uh, and uh, what parameters ought to be in place to assure uh, a true civilian nuclear agreement if that is indeed the case? Well, Senator, I, I, I've had this discussion with many of you in our consultations. I, 
I certainly think that in some future there can be nuclear power in Saudi Arabia, but I think any time the U.S. provides nuclear power to anybody, it needs to be done under the strictest controls possible. With the standard uh, gold-plated agreements that have been in every... I, as I would say, yes, that's certainly the standard, but the issue is all about let's not allow plutonium or other type of weapon or ever other type of substance move to somewhere where it can be used as a bomb. Right. Thank you. Ambassador Tuller, uh, we discussed some of the challenges in Iraq, obviously, with corruption. Uh, how does the United States uh, proceed addressing government corruption and how, you know, the tools that you could bring to the position? Uh, Senator, our, again, our engagement, and whether it's through advocating for uh, U.S. businesses to be present, to competing for contracts, and uh, the responsibility and the transparency that U.S. companies bring when they're engaged in an economy. Also, I think continuing to empower the Iraqi institutions that have been stood up, that so far have been able to um, uh, continue to, uh, to exist within uh, the new Iraq that are intent on uh, promoting greater transparency. The issue of corruption throughout the region, and in fact through many developing countries, is one that as U.S. diplomats, when we encounter, we see how toxic it is. And I think the U.S. government, by upholding our standards, by encouraging greater transparency, help the citizens of those countries. What, what effects do you see remaining from the separation of the, the, the referendum, uh, the, the decision, of the, or the attempt uh, last year, I believe it was last year? Uh, so between the Kurds yes, and the United Yes, correct. Well, of course, the call for a referendum, um, uh, we opposed that. We advised um, many of the Kurdish leaders that we thought, we, we thought it was provocative and, and unnecessary. Um, what I am pleased to say is that uh, we, uh, we, we're seeing that relationship already improving. I know that there's good relationship between the Kurdish leaders, the current president, and the current prime minister as well, and that uh, some steps are being taken to uh, repair that damage and put the relationship uh, on a better footing. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Gardner. Senator Udall. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to both of the witnesses here today. I appreciate your, uh, your testimony. Uh, the, these first two questions are for both of you. Last fall, Ambassador uh, James Jeffrey, the State Department Special Representative to Syria, stated during a Defense One conference, and I quote here, it requires stability ops to break Iran's meddling influence, end quote. Jeffrey continued saying that Iran, quote, will create a new Daesh if we don't get at the underlying problem, end quote, referring to an uh, uh, Arabic acronym for ISIS. This is an odd position given that Daesh is a Sunni terrorist organization. In tackling Iran, he said we have no better partner than Saudi Arabia. He added we couldn't be doing what we're doing in the region without them. Yet we know that funds from Saudi Arabia, donors, flowed towards Daesh and that many Wahhabi clerics were an inspiration to ISIL's leaders. Saudi Arabia has also been implicated in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and is directly responsible for one of the worst humanitarian disasters in recent history in Yemen. Comments like these and those of Secretary Pompeo and President Trump last year trying to frame Iran as a supporter of al-Qaeda and other Sunni terrorists without proof should get our attention. Just last year, Reuters reported, in announcing the U.S. withdrawal from 2015, 
Iran nuclear deal. Trump said in May that uh, Iran supports terrorist proxies and militias such as al-Qaeda, end quote. In a speech last week, Pompeo said, quote, today we ask the Iranian people, is this what you want your country to be known for, for being a co-conspirator with Hezbollah, Hamas, Taliban, and al-Qaeda? The same report, Reuters noted that a study cast doubts on these claims. Claims, if true, would give the president some legal argument to say that the 9-11 AUMF applies to Iran, a claim that I, as a member of Congress who voted in favor of the 9-11 AUMF, find to be without any basis in reality. My first question to both of, you is, both of you is, do you believe that a war with Iran is in the best interest of the United States or either of the countries you are nominated to serve in? No. No, Senator, I do not. Do either of you believe that the 9-11 AUMF extends to Iran or, the, or that Congress intended to use the 9-11 AUMF to take on Iran? Uh, Senator, I would have to defer to the State Department legal uh, advisor to address any issues about uh, authorized uh, use of military force. I would have to defer to the legal experts because <laughs> I don't have any expertise in in the issue. Yeah, well, you, but you guys were both around when all of this happened, and you know how targeted we were with the 9-11 uh, uh, AUMF and what our objectives were, which we long ago, long ago have achieved. So uh, I find that a little discouraged that you're punting on that one. Well, uh, it's, yeah. uh, you know, Senator, I, I guess I would say is I was a soldier, and we go where you tell us to go. Yeah. Yeah, well, I understand that, but you, you're also a very smart gentleman. You understand the realities of the Congress. It's Congress that, that uh, has the authority under the Constitution to declare war, and it's also Congress that, that if it decides to do so and it thinks it's appropriate, that ends wars. And, and so an AUMF that's been in place since 2001 and is being used around the world as the reason for going into countries, I think, is, a, is something you should be worried about as a soldier and something that you should have looked into. So anyway, Thank we, you, Senator. we all know that climate change is real and that the result is that in places like New Mexico and Iraq, there is less water for all to go around. We must adjust to this reality. There are real and persistent water challenges in Iraq, including the Mosul Dam and lack of sufficient drinking water supplies and trained staff to manage these important infrastructure investments. What role can the United States play and what role can you play to help facilitate a sufficient water supply in Iraq, including Mosul Dam stabilization so that the region avoids conflicts over water resources? Um, Senator, it's an excellent question. It's one that applies in Iraq. It's one that I've seen come into play in Yemen, which uh, faces uh, uh, depletion of its water resources and elsewhere in the Middle East, in Syria and elsewhere. So throughout the Middle East, you often find that uh, water resources are underlying uh, as part of the ongoing conflict. So I think it's important with respect to the Mosul Dam, the United States, the Army Corps of Engineers has been involved in some of the efforts to try to stabilize the dam. The Iraqis themselves are taking on a greater responsibility for that. It's a tremendous threat, one that we all need to uh, remain vigilant. So thank you for the question, Senator. Thank you. General, do you thank have a thought on that? 
Sir, I, I would only say, uh, Senator, that the water problems in the Middle East are great. And the number one thing we can do to help solve them is first get these conflicts under control to the best of our ability. Yeah. Once we do that, then other things will follow. Yeah, well, I, and I, I hope we can do that, and then I hope we can work on this, the, the uh, infrastructure for water resources and the other things that are needed for stability in order to, like you say, move forward. So I agree with you, Senator. Yeah, appreciate that. Thank, thank, thank you for your courtesies, Mr. Chairman. I know I ran over a little bit. You certainly here. did. Looks like, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I bow down gentle. and apologize to you. There will be war. That's right. <laughs> Senator Barrasso, so patient, and I'm sorry I passed you over uh, earlier, but thank you. <laughs> thank you, Senator. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Ambassador Tuller, if I could, get, I, just a general impression. How extensive is Iran's influence over Iraq? Well, of course, the two countries uh, share um, long border. They share economic history, family, religious ties, but I think it's often... Uh, missed as uh, you look at the broader to understand, uh, again, as I said, Iraqi nationalism, the fact that um, uh, Iraqi Shia clergy have their own um, uh, standing, credibility, legitimacy within the country. Uh, so I, I think it's important not to overstate or to uh, overreact to what is uh, Iran's presence and relationship. I would say we are not trying to sever the relationship between Iraq and Iran. There should be. What we want to see is a normal, healthy relationship based on respect for sovereignty and Iraq wanting to build as we want to build an Iraq that's a, uh, Iran wanting to build an Iraq that's uh, strong, stable, and sovereign. Something in terms about the Iran they have armed militias uh, who provided revolutionary guard forces to assist with the fighting against ISIS in Iraq. The, uh, so the, looking at the current role the Iranian forces are playing in Iraq and you know, what, kind of, what you see in terms of the, the force activity there. Uh, Senator, the issue of the popular mobilization forces that exist in Iran is, is one that's uh, complicated. I know that the prime minister and other government officials are trying to uh, bring all of those uh, forces under the control of the government. Many of those forces, in fact, are nominally under the control of the Prime Minister. What we're really concerned about is particularly those popular mobilization forces that are not responsive to the Iraqi government, but are taking their directions, their leadership, from not just Iran, but from the Iranian Quds, uh, Revolutionary Quds Force. And uh, that is what uh, is going to pose a great challenge, I think, moving forward for Iraq to emerge as a strong, sovereign, normal country. It has to deal with that issue. You know, we've been, the United States has been encouraging Iraq to uh, end its energy dependence on Iran. There's a Wall Street Journal article from November headlining U.S. pushes Iraq to wean itself off Iranian energy. Uh, but despite its role as a major energy producer itself, Iraq, it does rely on Iran for imported natural gas to use in gas turbine power plants. Uh, Iranian natural gas generates about 45% of Iraq's electricity. Uh, upon the reimposition of U.S. sanctions against Iran, the United States uh, has provided Iraq a couple of waivers. So I'm just thinking, is, do you believe Iraq is serious about ending its dependence uh, on Iran for energy and what efforts you know, is Iraq taking to reduce or end its energy dependence uh, on Iran? Uh, Senator, it's correct, uh, not only in, uh, the significant imports of natural gas from Iran, but also electric, uh, electricity itself is part of the grid. So it's important, for example, that Iraq um, 
um, receive capital, improve its ability to capture its own natural gas rather than flaring it so that it can be used to generate electricity. In the last several months, there has been some progress in that respect, but it's, it's time-consuming. Not enough has happened yet. And I think an important thing to try to use as, um, if I'm confirmed and as ambassador, to encourage uh, U.S. companies to be able to play a role in helping the Iraqi energy sector to capture that natural gas to use it for electrical generation. And then let's be less dependent upon Iran for those sources of energy. Thank you. General, if I could, just the blockade with Qatar. The, um, in, in, in June of 2017, Saudi Arabia entered into its, ended the diplomatic relationships with Qatar, and Saudi Arabia led a blockade against Qatar in terms of its Arab Gulf neighbors, Egypt, UAE, Bahrain. You, you know all of this things that have happened there. What, can you talk a little bit about what the current status is of this dispute uh, with, this, with Saudi Arabia and Qatar and what it, progress uh, has been there in terms of resolving the dispute? To be honest, Senator, I don't think there's been much progress in resolving the dispute. I know there have been some forums, especially in the defense arena, where Qatari representatives were allowed to attend opportunities to uh, meet with their Gulf colleagues. My opinion is that it's important to solve this problem, having Gulf states be antagonistic and at each other's throats at a time when they're facing a great threat from Iran, to me doesn't make geopolitical sense. Well, to, to that point that you just made, can you talk about how this dispute threatens the regional unity needed to counter Iran? Senator, the Iranians are masters at finding the small crack between forces of that they face and they have a small crack because of this dispute thank you thank you mr chairman thank you senator um ambassador tuller i think what raised what uh, senator Bras was raised about the iranian influence in iraq is a, a really serious concern to all of us we keep hearing more and more reports of that not only in this committee but uh, other committees that i serve on and uh i hope you'll pay pay close attention to it uh we all know their, their malign intent, and uh, we realize it's complicated, like you said, but uh, it's, it's uh, uh, discouraging to hear the, the, the inroads they continue to make into the, uh, into the Iraqi uh, uh, infrastructure. So in any event, I hope you keep an eye on that. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. <clears throat> uh, General Abizad, I'm very inclined to support your nomination, but I heard a few answers here that create a little cause of concern for me, so let me try to follow up with you. In several answers, you said we can't afford, and went on to describe elements that we can't afford Saudi Arabia to, not to do X, Y, or Z. From my perspective, we can't afford to continue to allow the Saudis fighting in Yemen and indiscriminately bombing civilians and ultimately violating international law. We can't afford to allow the killing of an, Amer an American resident journalist with impunity and no consequence for that. We can't afford to allow US citizens or permanent residents to be detained and if some of these allegations are true, tortured without consequence and the list goes on. So yes, many of us uh, understand that the Saudi relationship is important in our broader national security question, particularly as it relates to Iran. But that doesn't mean, that does not mean that we cannot challenge 
our relationship with a nation, even when our security interests may align. Is, is that your view, that we, we can challenge and seek to change the nature of the relationship, or is it that we have to accept what they have done in order to pursue our greater national security goals? Senator, I, I thought I was clear in saying we should not accept these outrageous sorts of problems such as the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, that we shouldn't accept the torture and detention, the alleged torture and detention of an American citizen, and so many other things, as I mentioned in my opening statement. These short-term problems have to be solved now, and it requires forceful discussions on the behalf of the United States with the government of Saudi Arabia. And I am prepared to have those discussions if you confirm me. All right, well, because that, that's important because I, I get concerned that somehow we create uh, this uh, uh, aura that the relationship's so important that we cannot challenge uh, those things that are horribly wrong about it. And I don't buy that. Because if at the end of the day you can kill a journalist with impunity, and because of our interests, we'll look the other way. That is a dangerous message to send across the globe. Uh, and it is a dangerous message to send to any other country for which we may have an interest, that you can act with impunity as long as you pursue a certain interest we might have with you. That, that is not who we are as a nation. I just want to make sure you're going to have no problem pursuing uh, those challenges. I have no problem saying what I need to say now, in and, that regard. And in that regard, w will you press the Saudi government on the continued detention of American citizen Dr. Walid Fatahi? Yes. And will you commit to request to visit women rights activists who've been unjustly detained? Yes. All right, and finally, let me turn, Ambassador Chell, I don't want you to think I have no affection for you uh, in this hearing, so uh, uh, let me just ask you, what does success look like for us in Iraq? And how do we achieve that? And what tools do we have to try to achieve it? So, uh, I succinctly give me a sense of that. It's a broad statement of your message, of your mission, I should say, but I'd like to get a sense of what it is that we are working towards. Sir, I, I believe we do need to be guided by a long-term strategic vision, and I think it's a vision that uh, sees Iraq as a, a pillar of stability in the region. And uh, we uh, achieve that by working with Iraqis to build up their security institutions, by building up their economy, by combating the influence of sectarianism, by combating um, issues like uh, corruption or lack of transparency in the economy. We seek that as a vision, whereas you look at the contrasting agenda of Iran, which seeks uh, an Iraq that's weak, that's divided, that doesn't have sovereignty over its own territory and forces. We are working to, uh, to bring about in areas of Iraq uh, clean drinking water and government services to people, where Iran is flooding the market with cheap goods and, in fact, even with, uh, uh, with heroin or other, um, uh, other dangerous products. So we need to be um, projecting a positive, constructive vision for, for Iraq, and I have no problem doing that. And what's our leverage to achieve those things? Again, I think that we have allies and partners who want that, Iraqis who want that same vision, and working with them, whether they're from Kurds, whether they're from political alliances, uh, wherever they come from, those Iraqis that want to see a strong, stable, unified, sovereign Iraq, those are the people that we will work with. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> we hear a lot of partisan talk up here, but uh, so there is no mistake. I think the ranking member probably articulated as clearly 
is it's possible that um, when we have an ally, we try to support those allies as best we can, but the kinds of things that have been happening lately make it very, very difficult, and we cannot look the other way. Thank you for those remarks, uh, Senator Menendez. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you for uh, giving us the opportunity to ha have a short second uh, round. Appreciate, General Abizade, your follow-up answer to um, Senator Menendez. I, as well, was a, a bit concerned with what uh, it was, to me, an unexpected robust defense at times of uh, the Saudi regime, and so I appreciate your clarification. Um, uh, my second round, though, is for you, uh, Mr. Teller. Um, uh, the Houthis no doubt bear significant uh, responsibility for the humanitarian catastrophe up until this day. Um, but you are the first diplomat with jurisdiction over the crisis in Yemen that I have ever heard assign zero percent responsibility for the humanitarian disaster inside Yemen to the Saudis. And it seemed as if you resisted amending that answer in the follow-up from Senator Merkley. And although Senator Young didn't ask you a question, I think you understood the beginning of his, um, of his query to you. Um, just because one party starts a war does not give carte blanche to the other side to conduct themselves in a manner that makes the humanitarian situation on the ground worse. And by saying that the Saudis bear no responsibility for what has happened there is a permission slip um, to, to the Saudis and anyone who's a contestant to a conflict to behave as irresponsibly as they like just because they might not have been the instigator. Um, I, I can recite you the same statistics that Senator Merkley did, but they're pretty overwhelming in terms of the consensus among the international community as to the effect that the bombing campaign targeting civilians, the months-long blockade had on the worsening humanitarian situation. So I want to give you one last shot before we end here to amend your answer that the Saudis, that the Houthis bear 100% uh, responsibility for the civilian nightmare that has happened inside Yemen. Uh, Mr. Senator, thank you for the following question. And in describing what I think is an analytical position as to exactly what is happening to the economy in Yemen, that does in no way or shape excuse the Saudis when they violate uh, the arm of long, uh, armed conflict or conduct their military operations in a manner that doesn't do, uh, give due regard for civilian life. What I'm describing, however, is a situation in Yemen, already the poorest country in the world with measures of, uh, of uh, childhood stunting, famine that existed before 2014, that has absolutely had the economy, the legs of the economy kicked out from under it by the actions of the Houthis and the Iranian-backed uh, proxies. Um, the UN uh, humanitarian coordinator, I think, has described the situation best when she said, Yemen is not suffering from a famine of food. Yemen is suffering from a famine of incomes. That is what is really driving most of the humanitarian suffering that we're all witnessing. Yemenis who have lost their incomes because of closure of private sector, small and medium enterprises, who have lost their government salaries, the government that's lost its income from... I, I get it. I get it. That's not my question. I understand what's happening there. The question is whether the Saudis bear something above 0% responsibility for what has, for what has happened. There. Senator, I understand and absolutely I, I wouldn't minimize that when there have been uh, targeting of infrastructure such as roads or bridges or transportation and that has had a very, very deleterious impact on the economy. But if you're looking for a solution of how we're going to address the humanitarian situation, 
it's going to be able to find a way to leverage the Houthis into entering into a peaceful power sharing agreement. It's not going to happen as a result of what the Saudis will do. The answers lie in the hands of the Yemenis. And sir, I think many, many Yemenis would tell you exactly the same thing that I've said here today. So are you not, ch so <laughs> help me figure this out. Are you, are you changing your answer or not changing your answer? Because this is a, pro this is a problem <laughs> for, for you moving forward here. If you can't, if you can't commit to us that, that the Saudis have some responsibility for what's happened there, as, as, as almost everyone who's testified before this committee, before you, has said. Are you changing your answer or not? Sir, with the war going on, and of course the Saudis is one of the participants, absolutely, of course, they have had an impact on the humanitarian suffering. I'm not saying that. Um, I, and I think, again, going to the specific question, when there have been violations of the law of uh, armed conflict or undue consideration for collateral damage, we cannot overlook that or excuse that. But, uh, sir, when I'm looking for answers of how we are going to, as a nation, resolve the humanitarian crisis, we've got to look to the underlying causes of what's happening in Yemen, the responsibility of all the Yemeni parties, and what we're going to do so that the Yemeni civ civilians don't con continue this suffering. Thank, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator. <clears throat> well, with that, uh, thank you to both of you and your families. Uh, you've been very patient uh, with us, and uh, we really appreciate that. Uh, for information of the members, the record will remain open until close of business on Thursday, including for members to submit questions for the record. With the thanks of the committee, this hearing is now adjourned.